0: Thank you. Let me say Merry Christmas to you. So good to see each of you here this morning. I'm delighted that you're here, and all of our guests who may be joining us for worship, we want to welcome you, and we're so glad that you're here. I want you to take your Bible this morning and uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I want to go to the Christmas story, and for those of you who may be joining us for the very first time, throughout the month of December, I've been preaching in a series On various characters from the Christmas story, some of whom are familiar, others of whom perhaps you've never really considered uh, to be a character in the story of Christmas. Uh, For example, we began uh, with the prophet, and we considered how Christmas is the fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, the birth of Jesus was fulfillment of uh, prophecy such as Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6. And others, such as his birth in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. And then we considered the woman, uh, where we looked at the story of Mary, uh, and looked at Christmas from Mary's perspective. And then, perhaps somewhat strange, uh, we looked at Christmas from the perspective of a dragon. And we went to Revelation 12, where in that passage of Scripture, the Apostle John is given a really a symbolic vision of the cosmic conflict that has been waged from ages long past as well as he's given a glimpse of something in the future uh, where there's a dragon that's poised to devour the male child which the woman is to deliver. And in that vision, the woman is symbolic of Israel. The male child, of course, is symbolic of the Messiah, Jesus. And the dragon is a picture of Satan himself, the ancient serpent of old, the enemy of God's people. And from that, we sort of made the application that the enemy would love nothing more than to wreck Christmas and ruin your life. But aren't you grateful that he is defeated? And he could not keep Jesus from coming the first time, and he will not prevent the Lord Jesus Christ from coming a second time. Well, in Luke chapter 2, I want us to consider the familiar Christmas story from this passage of Scripture. And the characters that I want us to consider this morning are the angels of heaven. And so I want us to look at Christmas from the perspective of the angels. Now, I will say this, down through the years, there's no telling how many children have been left with the impression that the angel sent to announce the news of the Savior's birth, his name is Harold. (laughs) Now, Charles Schultz even pointed that out uh, sort of comically in a uh, Peanuts comic strip uh, years ago, one Christmas, uh, where he had a character named Harold Angel. And so, as the little comic strip goes, Charlie Brown's sister Sally was in a Christmas play, and it was her line to say, Hark! And then Harold Angel would come and sing. But Charlie Brown, I mean, he just couldn't get it. He tried to tell Sally that, No, it's a Christmas carol. Hark, the Harold Angels sing. And so, finally, guess who comes by their house looking for Sally? It's a little boy by the name of Harold Angel. <laughs> now, I think Charles Wesley probably would have appreciated that. Uh, the great hymn writer that he was wrote more than 3,000 hymns, many of which we still sing, and of course, the one that we sang this morning was written by Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, he was poring over this passage of Scripture in 1737, and as he reflected upon the truth from Luke chapter 2, Uh, He was inspired to write the words for what many consider to be the greatest Christmas carol or hymn that's ever been written. And think about the words that we sang just a moment ago. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And what's the substance of their song? What's the message that they announce? Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And so that word hark is a very important word. Uh, It means to listen carefully so you don't miss the importance of something. And so the angelic host who appear here in Luke chapter 2, they have something very important to declare. It's really a message that they've been sent from heaven with as heralds who announce the news of the Savior's birth. And so you and I would do well to listen to what these angels have to say to some shepherds here in the Christmas story. And so it would be hard to imagine the Christmas story without any mention of the angels. If you think about it, the angels are all over the Christmas story. Uh, They're there in Matthew's account uh, where the angel appears to Joseph in a dream uh, telling him about the supernatural, miraculous nature of Mary's pregnancy. The angels are there uh, sort of serving as protective agents, watching over uh, Mary and Joseph during those events. Uh, Here in Luke chapter 2, you'll notice that that word angel or angels is mentioned at least five times uh, from verse 8 all the way through verse 21. And so literally, angels are everywhere in the Christmas story, and these angelic messengers are announcing the wonderful news that the long-awaited Savior has been born into a world of sinful humanity. And so if you have your Bible there, let's read, beginning in Luke chapter 2, verse number 1, so familiar that many of you perhaps know it by heart. Uh, But the Bible simply says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Now, let me tell you, every time an angel shows up like this in the story of scripture, It's always uh, an awesome thing. There's always an element of fear uh, that it sort of provokes in the heart of those who witness uh, these supernatural angelic beings. But notice in verse 10 that the angel says to these shepherds, fear not. In other words, as awesome a display of power that this truly was, these shepherds had no need to fear because I'm bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all the people." So this is something to celebrate according to the angels. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so, imagine this in your own mind. Uh, What begins with one angel who's announcing the news of the Savior's birth now leads to a, a, a multitude of angelic beings, heavenly hosts, praising God, lifting up their voices with one accord, saying, Glory to God in the highest, And so it would have been a spectacular sight to behold. And verse 15 says that when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And so the Christmas story then from the perspective of heaven's angels. Now, I don't have to work very hard to convince you that there's a lot of fascination with angels and demons in our culture Uh, from movies to television, science fiction, genre, novels that kind of thing but when it comes to this subject of the angels and demons uh, we tend to gravitate toward extremes C.S. Lewis said that our approach to angels and demons tend toward disbelieving their existence on one hand toward becoming overly fascinated and preoccupied with them on the other hand And then you consider the fact that our secular age, in this secular age, it makes it that much more challenging to deal with the subject of the supernatural. But lest we forget about it, we're dealing with real history here when we deal with the Christmas narrative. Events that have happened in real history, in real time, on the stage of human history, and it's indeed a very supernatural thing that's taken place. And so some people would say, well, angels, this is a subject from a bygone day of superstition. Nowadays, people look for scientific explanations behind the happenings of our world rather than spiritual explanations. Well, let me tell you something. If you're looking simply for scientific explanations, science is based upon that which is observable. And last time I checked, you and I weren't there when the cosmos were created. Right? And so the Bible says it's by faith that we accept that the worlds which are seen were made by that which are unseen. Charles Ryrie said this if one accepts the biblical revelation, then there can be no question about the existence of angels. And you think about all that the Bible has to say about these mysterious creatures. And first of all, it's extensive. Uh, The Old Testament speaks about angels a little bit uh, more than 100 times. The New Testament refers to angels some 165 times. But everywhere you turn, there is the involvement of angels, especially in those transition moments in redemptive history. And angels are mentioned all throughout the Scriptures. It's not confined to one particular period of history or another. Their existence is mentioned in 34 books of the Bible From the earliest to the very last and then you consider all that Jesus himself had to say about the subject so if someone would come along and deny the existence of angels say like the Sadducees of old did they denied the supernatural they denied the presence of angels if you deny the existence of angels then let me ask you this question do you know more than Jesus because to cast doubt on the existence of the angels is to cast doubt upon the very words of Jesus himself. And so, more than 300 references to angels, directly and indirectly, in the pages of God's word. And so, it really shouldn't surprise us here that the Christmas story is, is, is loaded with references to these angelic creatures, And uh, mysterious creatures they are, these angels have a very real purpose, and their purpose is to simply do what God bids them to do. They're created as worshipers. You can think of them as God's staff who can constantly worship Him day and night. They're personal creatures. They're functional beings. Their primary purpose is to magnify the holy name of God. And when God gives them an assignment, uh, they answer to his beck and call. And so here we see that it's heaven's angels who were sent to announce the wonderful news that the Messiah had been born. You know, the Bible says something um, uh, in in, in, uh, 1 Peter uh, makes reference of the fact that angels long to look into our salvation with curiosity. Whereas you and I are the recipients of the grace of God, did you know that that's something that's foreign to the experience of an angel? The angels look with curiosity upon the grace which is mine and yours in Jesus Christ. It's something that they've studied uh, for all of human history. They're waiting in the wings, as it were. The angels have watched as the redemptive plan of God has unfolded from Genesis 3:15 on. The angels watched with Anticipation and curiosity as God creates man in his own image. That's not something that's true of the angels, but it's something that's true of me and you. The fact that we've been formed and fashioned for a relationship with God made in his own image. The angels were there and they were watching, no doubt, with a puzzled mind as man fell in the Garden of Eden. They watched with curiosity, no doubt, when they saw those unholy angels in league with Satan deceive our first parents. There's been a long cosmic war fought in the heavenly realms between holy angels and unholy angels. The angels were watching with curiosity when God in His grace preserved Noah and his family, though He flooded the rest of the earth. The angels were there watching and waiting in the wings as God calls Abram from Ur of the Chaldees and establishes a covenant with him through whom God's going to bring blessing to the world of men. And the angels are there and they're watching with curiosity as God forms a covenant people in the Old Testament. And they watch as those covenant people uh, fail multiple times over and over again. They're carried into captivity because of their unbelief and their idolatry and yet they watch with curiosity because God doesn't abandon his covenant promises to his people. The angels are there and they're listening and they're watching with curiosity as God through his Holy Spirit moves upon the hearts of Israel's prophets and prophecy is given that announces the news that the Savior is going to come. Messiah is going to be born. There's going to be a descendant who's going to rule and reign from the throne of David for all of eternity, and that's something the angels listen to with curiosity. And so here in Luke chapter 2, no doubt the angels are thrilled and overjoyed That now, after 400 long years of silence on the stage of human history, as far as heaven is concerned, now the heavens are opened up for some lowly shepherds, and the angels are announcing the glorious news that God's people have been waiting for. The Savior, who's been promised, has now come. And so angels, they're curious about these things. Listen, angels are curious when they look upon your life. You who are a recipient of the grace of God, who have an awesome opportunity to come boldly before God's throne of grace in your time of need and and to pray and to call upon him through the way that's been opened up through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something the angels are puzzled about and they look into with curiosity. Well, let's look at the angels here specifically in this particular passage. And notice how their involvement involves Uh, really just several interesting truths. The first thing that I would mention is the providence of God and really the providential circumstances in which heaven's angels appear. Now, you'll notice that Luke, being the keen historian that he is, uh, he writes with specific dates uh, and and political leaders, and he's referring to very real things verified uh, even through other sources of antiquity. In those days, a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Luke is wanting us to know that this is not just superstition. This is not just some made-up fairy tale. This is not some whimsical, fanciful tale uh, that man has come up with. But this is God acting upon the stage of human history. And he's describing the circumstances that really surround this announcement made by the angels uh, that the Savior is indeed being born. So as these events were happening in Bethlehem, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, some 1,500 miles away, there's a man who refers to himself as Augustus. Or supreme ruler, because he was in control of the world at that particular point in time. His name in history is Octavian. And uh, this Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He became heir of Caesar's empire. And really for 45 years, this powerful man was absolute monarch over the entire Roman empire. He was a skilled leader who put an end to civil wars in his day. He extended the borders of the Roman Empire from the west of Europe deep into the Middle East, as far as the desert regions of Iraq today. I mean, vastly dominating the entire known world at that particular time. And yet, Augustus brought about what became known as Pax Romana, or Roman peace, It was often referred to as Pax Augusta in tribute of him because he not only conquered the world, but he brought peace through all of the realm by the skill that he had as a leader. This Pax Romana led to soft borders everywhere. It was this Caesar Augustus who built massive roads and transportation systems in all uh, directions, uh, facilitating the easy spread of commerce and that kind of thing. And so when you consider that, remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 when he says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. And the word time that he uses there is the Greek word chronos as opposed to kairos, which means that it's not sort of an opportune time that God was looking for. But by the use of that word chronos, Paul wants you and I to know that God had been preparing human history up until this point, and no doubt the angels of heaven were involved in that, whereby God was preparing the world for a fixed point in time on his calendar when his son would be born into the world of humanity. That's what's going on here. And so that's the providential circumstances into which these angels appear, and so when you think about it, from a political standpoint, it was the right time. Because under Augustus, Rome provided the world with political stability and strength. There's a system and an infrastructure that was in place. Roads were everywhere. It made travel easier as it ever had been. Now, again, it wasn't as convenient as modern interstates and airports and things that we have in our day. But in the ancient world, this was, this was new technology. Uh, It was a world where you had the rapid, easy access to take the gospel everywhere. So that, how was it that in Paul's own lifetime, uh, literally he could take the gospel and plant churches in every major city in the empire in his own day. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. At just the right time on God's calendar. The time that God himself had determined. So politically it was the right time. Uh, From a religious standpoint, it was the right time. For centuries, the law had been in place and had conveyed the truth that men and women need a Savior. The Old Testament canon had been well established. There was a system of synagogues that were in place where major cities throughout the empire had local Jewish synagogues. Israel had been in a 400-year-long period of silence and there had been no prophetic voice. And so it was almost as if there were a divine intermission that were taking place in the drama of redemption. So that act one had come to a close and the second act was about to begin. And so politically, it was the right time. Religiously, it was the right time. Culturally, from a cultural standpoint, it was the right time. If Rome provided a political stability, then you might could say that Greece provided a cultural stability because the Greek language was the dominant language of the day, and it was spoken and known throughout the whole world at that point in time, which meant that the empire of Rome had a single common language that really enabled trade, and this would later aid the the rapid spread of the gospel. Uh, The 27 books of the New Testament are written in Koine Greek. And so when you look at the religious, political, social landscape, you can see how it's the right time for Christ to come into the world. God had prepared the world for this particular moment. These providential circumstances, this didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by coincidence. But God, no doubt through the activity of heaven's angels, in his own sovereign strength and power and plan, He's orchestrating the events to bring his son into the world. And Christ is sent into the world with a mission and a purpose. And that's the news that these angels from heaven are announcing to these shepherds. So not only is that the providential circumstances, uh, notice the second thing. What about the particular people to whom these angels appear? The angels, they appear to some particular individuals in this passage of Scripture. Shepherds, not the type of people that you would think that heaven's angels would be sent to. You would think that the angels would appear only to those of humanity who were of some reputable importance. I mean, of all of the people in the world that God could have chosen to announce the birth of his son, he chose lowly shepherds, not to kings and queens, not to dignitaries, not to the royalty of the world, uh, not to the priests and the religious establishment in Jerusalem. Uh, no, he sends his angels to these lowly shepherds who in that day were frowned upon by the rest of society. Now, I know in the Christmas plays when our kids dress up as angels and shepherds, we take pictures and we, we gawk and, and, and we, we, we laugh and we smile and we have a wonderful time. But let me tell you something about shepherds in the first century world. They were the outcasts, frowned upon by everybody else in society. They were viewed as being the rough and tumble crowd. Chuck Swindoll says this God sent word of his son's birth first to people most likely to welcome the news of the Messiah, people who wanted a Savior. Augustus held a firm grip on much of the world, so his immense power blinded him to his own need. Herod the Great strutted around the marble floors of his palace, proud of his own achievements, but paranoid of his enemies. The religious authorities who ruled the temple, they wanted a Messiah to affirm their hypocrisy and advance their own political agenda. But it's not to Caesar, it's not to Herod, it's not to the religious authorities that God sends his angels, it's to these lowly shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And it really reflects the heart of God for the lowly and the outcast, doesn't it? And that's something that we keep coming back to in the Christmas story. Remember what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, where the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, consider your own calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Now listen to this. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what's low, and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And so there was nothing about a shepherd that was glamorous, but there's something marvelous about their inclusion in the Christmas story. And the fact that the angels of heaven appear to these shepherds. And the fact that they're the first to hear the announcement of Christ's birth, this is really a clue as to what kind of Messiah he's going to be. You know, God doesn't do anything by accident, unintentionally. No, he's purposeful in all that he does. And so here you find Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of prophecy and the king who's going to be seated upon the throne of David, but he's also going to be a shepherd who's going to lay down his life for his sheep. You think about what David wrote, that magnificent psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I remember thinking about that as a kid and hearing that and thinking, why would anybody not want the Lord as their shepherd? It's not what that means. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm not going to be in want. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. Why? Because he's my shepherd who provides for me, who leads me, who guides me, who feeds me. What about Matthew 9, 36, where it says that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or John 10, 10, where he says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so the angel's announcement of the good shepherd's entrance into our world, it had to happen in shepherd's fields among those who lead sheep because this is pointing us to the type of Messiah that he would be. Listen, aren't you grateful that he's a faithful shepherd? He's a good shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray. But God has laid upon his own son the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, the prophet writes all about it. Not only is he the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, he's also the sacrificial lamb who bears our sins as our final Passover lamb. So that now there's an atonement for sin. There's a a sacrifice for sin. And you think, well, I've got to do something to just pay God back for all of the things that I've done wrong. Listen, how could you ever pay an eternal debt like that? You couldn't do it. If you had a thousand lifetimes to live, you couldn't do it. But Jesus Christ has done it for you through his own sinless life and his own sacrificial death and resurrection so that the debt is paid. Thank God for our shepherd. And that's the news that these angels are announcing. So there's the providential circumstances into which these angels appear. There's the particular people to whom these angels appear. And then notice third, the promised news with which these angels appear. They've got a very special announcement to make. Now, could you imagine what that was like when, when they're in the sleepy, quiet village of Bethlehem, just on the outskirts of the village of Bethlehem, the night sky suddenly lit up. <laughs> I want to say lit up like Christmas lit up like my neighborhood right now. If you've driven through my neighborhood, we've got a light fight in our neighborhood, I've got a neighbor uh, not far from me. Literally, he's got strobe lights on the top of his house that you can see as, as you're coming down our road even before you get into our neighborhood. But the light of God and the glory of God that shone all around these shepherds, it was much brighter than that. And so the angel says to the shepherds, Fear not. The word that he uses there, it's the the same Greek word we get the word phobia from. Well, there's a lot of phobias, aren't there? All kinds of different phobias. Arachnophobia. Spiders. Snakeophobia, whatever that one is. (laughs) Do you know that the greatest fear that people have in our society, is fear of public speaking. And then second to that is fear of dying. (laughs) So literally, there are people who would rather die than to stand up here and do what I'm doing this morning. (laughs) But the angels are saying, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Same word we get the word evangelism from, good news, or gospel from. These angels are making an announcement, a gospel announcement, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And the key verse of the passage is verse number 11, and this statement by the angels, listen to this, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. There's no need for you to fear. There's no need for you to panic. There's no need for you to live with despair, because unto you this day in the city of David there's a Savior who's been born. And this Savior's Christ the Lord. Now listen, don't you think that if humanity's greatest need was ignorance, God would have sent an educator? But that's not what the text says, does it? If humanity's greatest need is poverty, then the text would say that perhaps God sent, would send an economist to solve all of our financial problems. But that's not what the text says. If the greatest problems of humanity were political in nature, then you would think that the text would say, God sends a statesman into our world, but that's not what the text says. The greatest problem of humanity is spiritual. It's sin, it's alienation from God. It's the fact that man, no matter how hard he tries, no matter how good he is, he is still rotten to the core and he can't do anything to save himself. And so what does he need but a savior? And so the good news to these shepherds announced by these angels is that that Savior has indeed been born. And he is Christ the Lord. And that's the greatest news that the world has ever heard. He didn't come to be just an example for morality. Jesus didn't come to just be primarily a good teacher or a prophet or a symbol of hope. He didn't simply come to be a baby, to be cooed at in a manger. All of that was true of his life, but he came to be the Savior. He came to be the one and only sacrifice who will make atonement for our sin. And so pay attention to the news announced by these angels, for unto you is born. And that word you there, it's plural in Greek, and it reflects the fact that Jesus came for the whole world. Not for a privileged class of people. Not for a certain group of men and women, but for men and women of every ethnicity. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And someone says, I don't think that it applies to me. There's not a single person in this room or anywhere who could say, I don't think that that applies to me. Because you could write your name right there in John three sixteen. God so loved Brandon Ware that he gave his only begotten son. That if Brandon Ware would repent of his sin and believe the gospel of God's own son, Brandon Ware won't perish, but he'll have everlasting life. You insert your name there in John three sixteen. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. The idea is the long wait was over. Messiah has come. The one who is destined to rule and reign from the throne of David, he's come. And he is our Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so listen, this angelic announcement then is the greatest moment in the history of the world up until this particular moment in time. Because the angels are announcing the wonderful news of the incarnation of the Son of God. And for 33 and a half years, Jesus is going to live a sinless and perfect life. And it's remarkable that really we only know three and a half years of his ministry. Well, the vast majority of his earthly life was lived in obscurity. You say, well, what was he doing during those 30 years that we don't really know anything about? I'll tell you what he was doing. He was perfectly obeying the will of his Father in heaven. That's what he was doing. Now think about this. The very one who gives you the oxygen that you have right now to breathe, to take into your lungs, at this particular moment in Luke chapter 2, the one who's responsible for your breath is taking his very first breaths as one of us. As the creator humbles himself to be born into our world as he lays aside the glory that he's known from eternity past with his father. You think of the circumstances into which he's being born. He's not being born in an ivory palace. The red carpet's not being rolled out for him. No, he's being born to a peasant girl and her fiance. And they've had to travel 90 miles because of some government mandate all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Could you imagine? Couldn't it have come at any other time? Why when I'm just now getting ready to give birth? Because Micah 5.2 said that the baby had to be born in Bethlehem. And so in order for that to be reality, guess what God's doing? Well, the most powerful man in the land at that particular point in time, he thought he was in charge. Caesar Augustus thought he was in charge. But listen, we know that God the Father's in charge. Hey, Amen. And the whole reason for the tax Was perhaps to get Mary and Joseph Out of Nazareth to Bethlehem So that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem Amen. Yeah. And that wasn't an easy trip It was an arduous journey I don't know if you saw the Nativity movie Some years ago Back in 2006 it came out I thought they really just captured The difficulty of that journey That Mary and Joseph would have made I'll never forget it Because my wife was about 8 months pregnant At the time and we went to watch it and as they're making that trek, Mary is there on the back of the donkey, and she is great with child. And Joseph, he's leading the donkey, and you know his his feet are bloodied from the rough terrain. And it just really encapsulated, I think, in that moment, in that film, just the difficulty that that would have involved. The pain. We we tend to romanticize all of this Christmas stuff when we, when we think about it. But there was nothing romantic about it. It was, a, it was a difficult trip. These were painful circumstances. And then when they get to Bethlehem, Motel 6 didn't even leave the light on for them. <laughs> There's no room in the inn. And yet, all of this is by divine sovereign orchestration as well because Jesus is born and he's laid there in a manger. And do you know what a manger is? It's a feeding trough for animals. There's no bassinet, there's no silk clothes for the baby Jesus. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes and he's laid in a feeding trough. And yet, how appropriate that in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, here you have the bread of life laid in a feeding trough. And the shepherds witnessed this firsthand, and it's almost as if God himself is saying to us, are you hungry? Then here's my answer. The bread of heaven given to you. Are you thirsty? Here's my answer. Living water for you. It's the Lord Jesus. Aren't you grateful for the announcement of these angels? Praise the Lord. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? The greatest need in your life and my life is to address this issue that the angels deal with in their announcement to these shepherds. Where the angels say, I've got good news for you, gospel news for you. Because unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And they're given a sign that they'll see this baby in a manger. But it's a sign of peace and goodwill. You know what that means? It means that this child has been born so that the age-old dilemma of sin... And the alienation from God that sin brings. And the separation from God that sin causes. Jesus is born to address that problem. The greatest need in your life is peace. And I'm not talking about peace in some ethereal sense of the term. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm talking about peace like the world talks about peace. The absence of all conflict that kind of thing. No, the peace that is announced at Christmas by these Christmas angels, it's the news that you can be at peace with God. And the greatest need in your life is to be at peace with God. And there's only one way that sinners like me and you can be at peace with God. It's through turning from our sin and believing the wonderful gospel, the good news of Christ, His death on a cross for sin, His resurrection from the dead. And every person who confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord and believes in their heart that God is raised from the dead, they will be saved. And the result of that is that you will be at peace with God. And the beauty of this peace is that God himself is the one who takes the initiative. You say, how's he taking the initiative? Well, what more could he do? He's given his son. His one and only son. Born to die. For the sins of the world would you bow with me this morning on this Christmas Eve if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior why not believe the message that these angels came to announce to the shepherds and believe the wonderful news that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world the one who died for your sin and rose again from the dead repent that means turn from sin And place your faith and trust in Christ alone as your Savior. In just a moment, we're going to sing. I'm going to be right here down front. I'm going to ask some of our other pastors and ministers will join me here down front. If you need to be saved this morning or go public with baptism, baptism is the way that we announce to the world that we have now become the followers of Jesus. Why don't you come and pray with one of us pastors? Even now as we sing or even after the service is over, we would love to talk to you further. Maybe you need to come and talk to someone about joining our church and say, you know, I really believe that Green Street, this is the church that God would have me and my family be a part of. Our doors are wide open. We would love for you to come. Lord, I'm so thankful for the message of these angels and the birth of the Savior. What wonderful news that is, Lord, for a sinner like me. Thank you that you're in the life-changing business, Lord. And the greatest need of our hearts and lives is the peace that comes through reconciliation. And that's what Christmas really is all about. Sinners being reconciled to a holy God through the finished work of Jesus, your Son. And so, Lord, for any person this morning that has never by faith received Christ as their Savior, Lord, I can't think of a greater gift on Christmas Eve than the gift of a brand new life eternal life, the life that God himself would give in Jesus name I pray Amen